Well, here we are, like Aaron said, in this week before Thanksgiving, and my guess is that this week will hold many things that are out of the routine. Some of you are maybe here in town visiting, you're traveling already, others of you are going to be the travelers in a few days. Uh, all of us will probably have a moment of reflection where we hopefully stop and say, this is what I'm thankful for. This is a week of traditions. You will probably have some version of somebody's famous pie that has been passed down through generations. There will be, no doubt, at least one dish on the Thanksgiving table that nobody likes, but it's tradition, so you will eat it. <laughs> there are probably traditions where certain people sit at your table or at what age you move from the kid table to the adult table. Uh, this is a week of celebrations and traditions. Uh, this is a week of football. Uh, football is one of the big traditions for many families. They gather perhaps around a game over Thanksgiving weekend. I am a uh, Chicago Bears fan. Our whole family is. I don't know why you're clapping. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is one of the most challenging ways to spend a lifetime of Sunday afternoons. But nonetheless, we are big Chicago Bears fans in our family. I never had a choice. I was just born into it. It's just what was in the DNA of the family where I was raised, and it's how our family exists now. Uh, 1985 will forever be the best season against which all other NFL seasons will forever be matched. When I was in elementary school, I was Steve Fuller in our rendition of the Super Bowl Shuffle way back in the day, uh, regardless of how many extra points we miss or how many quarterbacks we burn through, we are faithful fans in our family. Um, our oldest son is a college freshman, and he goes to school in Wisconsin. And when he made the decision to go to Wisconsin, we were celebrating, of course, his decision. And then my husband looked at him very seriously and said, now, son, if you become a Green Bay Packers fan after living up there, I will stop paying tuition. <laughs> Our extended family are also Bears fans. We've gathered for years to uh, watch games on occasional Sunday afternoons. And so you can imagine, it came as a bit of a surprise to our family when one Sunday afternoon, my brother-in-law announced that he was no longer a Chicago Bears fan. He had said, I am tired of the management, I am tired of the play calling, I don't like our draft choices, I don't like our offensive coordinator, I have done the research, and I am now a New England Patriots fan. Now, this was easy, it was Tom Brady and the New England Patriots at the time. But he was serious, he changed his social media icon to a Patriots helmet, he got rid of his Bears jerseys, and he said, I cannot take this anymore. After all of the discontent and unrest, I'm out. I've had enough. Now, of course, this is one among probably millions of sermon illustrations about football. But is there any part of your life where there's just a little bit of discontent or a lot of discontent that has led you to completely change directions, get a new jersey, change your team affiliation, whatever it might be. I had a friend years ago who had a lucrative finance career in Chicago. He had the sort of job in his late 20s that some people work an entire lifetime and never get. 
He was sort of a prodigy in what he did. And all of a sudden, one day, he said, I can't take it anymore, enough. And he left his job and started a nonprofit down in South America. We've had uh, friends who, at least those of us in the pastoral profession, have had friends who have had other careers and done a lot of different things with their life and then one day decided maybe in middle age to go to seminary because they wanted to change it up. They wanted to change the direction of what they were doing. They wanted to become perhaps a chaplain or a pastor. I know college students who are now, or freshmen, or seniors in high school, who are saying, you know what? Forget the college admissions process. It's too competitive, it's too cutthroat, it's too anxiety producing. And they jettison those plans and they say, I'm gonna take a gap year. I'm gonna go serve somewhere, or maybe I'm not gonna go to college at all. Some of you perhaps have had a moment where you have had to look at the family that you came from or the community that raised you and said, that wasn't a healthy place. And I'm gonna change directions and I'm gonna go with these people in this direction because this is where God is calling me. There exists a sort of discontent that we carry that when it rises to a certain level, it pushes us to find something new. It forces us. We can no longer carry it. We've got to change it up. So identify in your mind perhaps that sort of discontent if it's ever happened in your life or is happening now. Now pair it with a stage in your life when you could get up and change whatever you wanted to change. Maybe when you were younger or those of you who are younger, maybe it's now for you where you could get up and leave some of the attachments and the commitments you had. And now pair that with some of your siblings perhaps or a group of friends who also feel this same unrest and discontent. This is where we are at today when we come to our scripture for this morning, which is found in the book of John chapter 1 we have Jesus' call to the early disciples. If you've been at church at any point along the way, this is probably not a new story to you. It's certainly a different one that we might grab the week coming into Thanksgiving. But stick with me, because what happens with these disciples and the way they were ready to follow Jesus is significant for us in our time today. So our passage for this morning begins with John the Baptist. Now John is a prophet. John is preaching a way through the sort of unrest that some of the disciples had carried with them. He is a preacher that is against the established religious order of the day. He lacks any decorum. There are religious leaders and people certainly teaching all over the ancient Near East, but John is a different kind of communicator. And scripture tells us he comes crashing out of the wilderness. He's wearing a coat made of camel hair. He's got a leather belt. Scripture tells us he eats locusts and honey. He is the sort of guy, perhaps, from whatever adventure, wilderness documentary you might have seen, the one that everybody thinks is crazy, but also sort of wants to be like, perhaps, at the same time. And so John, his job is to announce the coming of Jesus. And so he sets up camp on the Jordan River, and people begin to come to him. 
People who have a sense of discontent, who are wound up and tangled up with a lot of the systems of their time, a lot of the broken parts in their communities. And John is calling people to the Jordan River, pointing toward Jesus and calling out the religious leaders of the time. So people leave their homes and they follow him. And this is where we pick up our passage for today. So he's been there for days, and the next day, scripture says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the guy. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I, John, I myself, I did not know him, but the reason that I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. He might be revealed to you. So I'm John, I'm here, I'm preaching about this guy, and look, there he is. So John turns to his devotees, to the folks camped out with him, and announces that Jesus has come. Verse 35 says this, then the next day, John is there again, and he's with two of his disciples. And when he sees Jesus passing by, he says again, look, the Lamb of God. Now the two disciples are Andrew and likely John, the gospel writer John, who actually wrote this account. These are the two disciples. No one knows yet what to make of Jesus. John has said, this guy's going to come. And there are, of course, centuries of Jewish history saying what this Jesus could look like, what this Messiah could look like, but nobody quite gets it yet or understands it fully. Jesus has yet to perform miracles. He's not healed anyone. He's yet to walk on water. They do not have the 2,000 years of hindsight that we all have today where we could study and read some of these stories. So they're curious, and this is what they came for. This is why they're here. So they begin to follow Jesus. When the two disciples heard John say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following. I don't know how close they were. They don't walk right up to him. They're kind of like, I think that's the guy, <laughs> and they follow him. Jesus turns around and goes, what do you want? Rabbi, they say, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come on, he replied, come and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. So it's late in the day when this happens. How far had they followed Jesus? I mean, their like sleeping bags and campfire stuff is still on the banks of the Jordan River with John. And I don't know how far they snaked their way through town, how far out Jesus drew them to wherever he was staying, but it's late. They need a place to stay. They're ready to move in whatever direction God leads them. Interestingly, the question that they ask, John writes in this text, he uses a word for staying that means more than just where are you laying your head tonight? Where are you camping out for a couple of days? The word, the Greek word meno here that John uses means where are we stopping basically? 
Where are we abiding? Where have we found the end of this journey? Where do we camp out with you? Where is the place that our lives meet yours? Scripture goes on. Andrew has a brother. So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two that heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to go find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. So you see the collection of this tribe. You see everyone starting to fall into line together. Andrew cannot contain himself. When you know something good, you immediately start texting or calling or whatever. Like, you guys got to come see this. And what an interesting exchange if you were Peter. Hi, hi, I'm Simon. No, you're Peter. I I want more context on that. We'll maybe find it out the other side of heaven, right? And then they go find Philip, and Philip is like, okay, Jesus says, follow me. And he's like, all right. Now, reading that in our current context, I've always looked at that and thought, wow, just like that. Follow me, okay. How many of you, if somebody you didn't know, even if you had heard about them, walked past you and said, follow me, you'd be like, great. I'm I'm getting in line behind you. That's kind of a hard ask. Now, the words follow me would have made a lot more sense at this time to those folks than it probably does to us now. Throughout the ancient Near East at the time of Jesus, there were itinerant traveling rabbis and teachers all over the place. And what would happen if you were a young boy in this culture is you would be raised, you would be educated to some level, and you would either take over your family business or you would apply to follow a rabbi. If you were bright, if you were a standout in your community, if you were able to excel in the religious education of your day, there would come a point in time where you would walk up to the rabbi of your choice or your family's choosing and go, here I am. Here's my resume. Probably not unlike applying to college these days. Here's everything I've accomplished. Pick me. And if you were chosen, the rabbi would look at you and go, follow me. That was the invitation. That was the word of acceptance. And it was rare that a rabbi would say, follow me. This was not an easy place to put yourself in. This was a prestigious calling. So when Jesus walks by and says to Philip, follow me, Philip's like, wow, okay, (laughs) I will do that. So Philip follows him. Scripture goes on, Philip like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael then and told him, he said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael's the first one that hesitates. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Like if I'm going to be rescued, can it be by someone of a higher status than this? Can my savior have a little more flash or stature? So the team gathers and Philip says, come and see to Nathaniel, come and see. 
and so he does. Now, like I said, if you've been to church any length of time or just around Christianity at all, words like disciple and follow me and, um, you know, these early Christians, this is not a new um, conversation, perhaps. And throughout Christian history, much has been made of this group of guys and their various responses to Jesus. On the one hand, the stories of how they follow often showcase them as these sort of titans of faith. They are painted with this supernatural awareness and response to the holy, the ability to sense in a nanosecond perhaps that Jesus was nearby. We boast when we tell their stories about the unique and incomparable readiness they had to jettison everything in favor of following Jesus. We can read a story like this today and look at the instant nature that is presented here and say, I can't keep up with that. I'm completely incapable of being a person like the disciples who can drop their lives in an instant when Jesus walked past, who was ready to recognize him. We set them up as these pillars. On the other hand, historically, we've also told the story about how these disciples were just ordinary folks. People just like us, going about their day, going to work, running their errands, checking in on their family. They were fishermen, we're told, some of them. They probably still reeked from mending their nets. Folks in despised professions like tax collectors. People wondering how exactly to pay their bills known as misfits, nobodies. No other rabbi had said to them, yeah, I want you. They didn't make that cut. They were utterly ordinary. Nothing about them would have indicated that some 2,000 years later, we would be here still telling their stories. So which one is it? I think a unique confusion in our faith occurs at the intersection of these two portraits. We are often led to believe that the transition from average to an extraordinary person of faith happened in a blink. And we do not often wonder about what the undercurrents of life were like for these folks. What did they do? How did they ready themselves so that when Jesus did walk by, they could recognize him? How did they bring themselves to a place in their life where that was a viable option for them? It didn't happen in a flash. Maybe the invitation came quick, maybe the response came quick, but there was a lifetime of preparation that had happened behind the scenes and in their hearts. And to be honest, if we went back in time and asked them, they might not even be able to identify it but there were certain postures and certain ways of being in the world that prepared them to say yes when Jesus called them. And that same opportunity is here for us. It is part of our life. It is part of the opportunity we have to ready ourselves so that when Jesus walks past us in whatever way that happens in our time, we can recognize it. So what did they have going? How did this work? The first The first thing is that they had a discontent, the sort of discontent we talked about at the beginning. The religious leaders of their time were preaching 
oppression and preaching power and preaching privilege. And that was not something that they wanted to be a part of. They saw what was wrong. They had a discontent, a discontent that they could not just write off or take enough melatonin to fall asleep and not worry about it. Whatever it might be, they could not get this out of their heads and their hearts. It's what sent them looking for John the Baptist. They were discontent enough to pack up what they had and move down to the Jordan River and hang out as long as it took to figure this thing out. Virginia Stem Owens writes, obviously, The disciples were dissatisfied with their way of life in Galilee even before they met Jesus, or they wouldn't have been drawn to the Jordan River to investigate this wild man, the baptizer, and all that he had to offer. So what level of discontent do you carry? What do you look around and say, God, that's got to change? On the rare occasion that I can talk to my dad without arguing about politics or religion, when we have an honest moment in our conversation, my dad will lament everything that is broken and tragic in this world, and he will go like this, he'll go, gah, and he just pushes his hands down like that. He's like, I don't know. Do you have that feeling inside of you? What are you discontent about? This is not an easy world to live in. There is so much that roils inside of us that we find ourselves maybe with it even kind of stuck in our neck like, ah, that is not right. That shouldn't happen. Why is this going on? What is the discontent that you carry? The disciples were not happy people when Jesus called them. They were ready for an answer to what plagued them and what plagued the world that they lived in. They were looking for something because they saw what was broken and they were able to name it and they were able to begin moving their lives toward a solution, which is the second part of this. They had both a discontent and a willingness to act on that discontent. Being upset and angry is really just the beginning. (laughs) The willingness to act positively on this is where change actually begins. I think one of the most dangerous postures of our time is a person who can wax poetic about everything that's wrong. They can point to an injustice. They know the names of the major players that push other folks down. They know the names of all the organizations who do the good work to fix it. They will tell you this is what's wrong in the world. But then they don't do anything about it. It is a cocktail conversation for them, or maybe a Thanksgiving table conversation. Barbara Brown Taylor writes, wisdom is not gained by knowing what is right. Just knowing what is right is not enough. She says, wisdom is gained by practicing what is right and noticing what happens when that practice succeeds and when it fails. James 2 says this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? 
I suppose a brother or sister, James writes, is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. A discontent paired with a willingness to act on that, to try to actually make what is broken right. The disciples had both of those. And the last thing they also had was a humble curiosity. A posture that at once had them humble before the Lord, yet curious and open about what God might actually be doing. Notice how they follow along. When they first meet Jesus, John and Andrew, they did not walk up to him and say, Jesus, it's good to meet you. I'm Andrew, I come from a very prestigious family. I want you to remember my name. I want you to remember I was first in line to follow you. No, they don't even have it in them to really walk up to Jesus. Jesus had to turn around and see them. They were like, hey, I think that's the guy. And they kind of follow along behind him. Many years ago, a couple decades ago, I had this sort of fleeting moment in my professional life where I thought I wanted to be a personal trainer. I wanted to get into the fitness industry. And I had to take a series of classes so that I could get my certification and I could be a personal trainer. And the classes were held at this just bougie gym down in the city, a very fancy place. And when we were on a break in between some of the classes we were taking, we got to take a tour of the facility. And this is right at the end of the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan era. And Michael Jordan happened to belong to this gym. So we get this tour and everybody's kind of joking like, oh, I wonder if we'll see MJ. And sure enough, we go down the staircase into this basement, um, this, ba this basement weight room, one of many weight rooms they had there. And Michael Jordan is in the weight room bench pressing in the corner with one of his buddies. And everyone's like, oh, he's here. And so we're all like down the staircase and there's a mirror on the wall so we can watch him work out without watching him work out. And everyone's like, I wonder how much he benches. You know, is he gonna put more weight on there? What's gonna happen? And it's interesting because there were two responses of this group of people I was with. The first were folks that were grabbing a pen or pencil as fast as, or not a pencil, but a pen as fast as they could. And I remember somebody ran to a nearby desk and grabbed a Sharpie and they were like pulling the sleeve of their sweatshirt. They wanted him to sign something. They were trying to find paper. It was like, let's crash in, let's announce who we are and let's get Michael Jordan to give us an autograph. And the other half of us was this group of us that were standing like with our back against the staircase. And one guy in the group goes, who am I to interrupt Michael Jordan's workout? And I was like, ooh, you make a good point. <laughs> and I kind of just stuck with him. And there was this curiosity, but it came with a humility. Who am I? Who am I to be in the presence of this renowned person who's done so many things that none of us could do? Who am I to be in the presence of Jesus? Who am I? But I'm curious enough about Jesus that I want to figure out who am I in relation to him. Matthew 23 says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What posture of humility did these guys carry with them to keep the curiosity and the engagement with Jesus so that he said to them, come and follow me. 
we're coming, as you all know. I mean, Aaron accidentally jumped the gun on it. He said, Christmas is coming. Thanksgiving is coming first, but really, we all know Christmas is coming, right? Christmas started the day after Halloween. Okay. <laughs> we have a few Christmas pillows already out at our house, and my husband's like, do not do this until the day after Thanksgiving. And my daughter's like, it's the season. So um, we have this debate in our house, but Christmas is coming. Advent. Advent starts next week. Advent is the beginning of the church year. Advent is the four Sundays that lead into Christmas Eve. Advent is the time of year where we wait for the coming of Christ. And we pause long enough, we hope, to recognize God when he passes through our lives. So as you head home and into overflowing tables, as you steady yourself for all of the chaos that is December in the United States, overspending, overeating, probably some anxiety, depression, some grief and some loss, some joy, some holly jolly, whatever, it's all tangled up. And whether you like it or not, December will eat you alive. And you will miss Jesus if you are not ready. So as all of us as preachers today at, in, in the uh, classic service and over at Butterfield, we wanted to help us all together take a breath and ask ourselves the question, are you ready? Are you ready for the majesty and the mystery and the awe of Advent when Jesus very quietly in the body of a newborn baby passes right by? What discontent do you carry that that baby is going to make right? What do you plan to do this month to make the wrongs in our world right? And what humble curiosity do you carry with you so that you can be near Jesus as he draws near to us during this season? Are you ready? just like the disciples found themselves ready all those centuries ago. Are you ready for what's coming? Amen? <coughs> I'm going to close in prayer, but I have a tickle in my throat. So we might make this a quick prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of this conversation, for the gift of your love. Thank you, Lord, for cough drops that I need. Thank you for making us ready. May we be found ready as you are ready for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>